Open our Bibles quickly to Revelation chapter 7. We completed chapter 6 this morning, and uh, I would like for us to look now in the 7th chapter, uh, 17 verses of this chapter, and we will consider what the Lord's servant says to us about this particular, cha- this particular moment in the Lord's dealing. Revelation chapter 7. Let's pray together, and then we'll consider the word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have the opportunity to study thy word together, how enriching it is, how thrilling, how enlightening, and Lord, uh, how stabilizing thy word is. And a day when we are living, we find so much uncertainty, uh, so many people are fearful of what is about to take place, and yet we thank you that you've given us thy word, that we not uh, be in the dark as to what's going to take place. And Lord, how thrilling to see the pieces of the puzzle being put together one by one before our eyes. Thank you that you have permitted us to live in this particular age of man's history. We thank you for it, for uh, what, an inco- what, Lord, uh, uh, strength we gain from seeing uh, and knowing uh, thy word in its fulfillment. Anoint us now with thy spirit. Speak to those who may be here this evening, uh, lost without Christ. May they come to know him. And for those of us who are thy children, challenge our hearts. Uh, May we be busy about the master's work and in his vineyard, knowing that we haven't many days left to labor before you come for us as thy people. Have your own way now and be glorified and we'll thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Now we look in chapter 7 of the book of Revelation and I like to think of this chapter as a powerful parenthesis, a powerful parenthesis. And I'm sure we all are acquainted with what a parenthesis is. I don't have to explain that to you reading along in a book and then comes those little Uh, funny looking things like this and it's just a little way of giving some additional information and that is what chapter 7 of this book of Revelation is. It is a section that gives us some additional information. So we look in chapter 7 and if you will read with me beginning at verse 1. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Now from verse 4 down through verse number 8. I will simply skip that for the moment and just say this. We're going to deal with it, but rather than reading the whole list, it is a simple uh, statement of those who will be sealed by our Lord's seal in the time of tribulation. And we'll get back to that in a moment. Mentions the 12 tribes of Israel. Now at verse 9. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne. And about the elders and the four beasts are living creatures and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered saying unto me, what are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. 
And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Now let me just give you before we delve into understanding this parenthetical chapter. Let me just give you once again a very brief overview of the book of Revelation and what we are seeing in this book. The book begins in chapter 1 with John's great vision of the Lord Jesus. And then in chapter 2 and 3, we have the Lord's message to the seven churches of Asia. And uh, we have dealt with those churches that point us and reminds us of the age of the church in which we are now living. And then you'll notice at chapter 4 of Revelation, at verse 1, we have a suggestion of the removal of the church from the earthly scene. Where in chapter 4, verse 1, John heard a voice that said, Come up hither. And we found that that very readily parallels with what Paul taught us in, in the letter to the Thessalonians when he said, The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now we have designated on our chart that point as the rapture. And uh, Paul deals with that, as we've said, in 1 Thessalonians and again also in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50 down through verse 53. Now the church is taken from this earthly scene. At that time from, and there is in Revelation by the way in chapter 4 and 5 as we have already seen, the scene shifts to heaven. And there in that heavenly scene is that dramatic uh, moment when the Lamb of God who alone is worthy takes the scroll from God's hand. He alone is worthy and that title deed, we are that scroll representative of the title deed to this earth. The earth belongs to him by right, we've said of creation, by right of redemption. And so the Lord Jesus takes that. And then we find in chapter 4 a great, that's in chapter 5, but in chapter 4 and 5, there is a great time of worship, of adoration, of praise, of rejoicing. Now that's chapter 4 and 5. But now in chapter 6, as we have been for, for the last couple of Sundays or so, we find the beginning of the Lord's dealing with the great usurper, as we've called him, the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world. He is unwilling to move from the premises. Remember our little illustration. I'll not go into that. But remember that. And so here is, the, here is the old squatter. But he doesn't want to remove from the property that is not his by right. But then the great judgment, the swiftness, the severity of God's wrath is poured out from chapter 6 through chapter 19, which will result in the eviction of the old squatter who is on territory that is not his at all. And our Lord Jesus then through the process of this judgment upon the earth, not only against the old squatter, but against all who oppose God, who follow after him, who have rejected God and his Christ. And so that is chapter 6 through 19. We have designated that on the chart as the time of tribulation. A period of some seven years. And we talked a little bit more about that this morning. But nonetheless, then comes that moment of the Lord's return to this earth. When he shall put down all rule, all Gentile authority and will establish his kingdom upon this literal earth. 
He will rule upon the throne of David from Jerusalem for 1,000 years, according to Revelation 20. He will dwell in power and rule this world with a rod of iron. It will be a time of prosperity, of peace, and so forth. And so we'll say a lot about that when we get to that particular section. But there is that kingdom that our Lord establishes. Now listen to me. All that you find throughout the course of history is headed in this direction. All of the events, our attention is drawn to this point in history or back there over here. But in reality, this is where all of history is headed to. This is the direction that it's taking. And remember this, that God is still the sovereign in control of all the affairs. You may think sometimes his program and his plan is sidetracked, but it isn't. God moves in that one direction and it is toward the fulfilling of his commitment and of his promise of his prophecies that one day Messiah will reign on this earth. And again, I remind you finally of this as far as our overview is concerned. That thousand year kingdom, that millennial reign of Messiah's kingdom will merge into the eternal kingdom of which there is no end. All right, just a simple overview, but I thought we need to reestablish that. Now, beginning at chapter 6 to 19, as we've said, there is that description of the tribulation. I gave you two divisions in that period of tribulation. But I think perhaps for clearer clarity's sake, I ought to give you a third division. And that is because of the things that take place. We divide it simply this morning into the beginning of the tribulation and the closing of the tribulation. But I'd like to insert between those the middle of the tribulation. And I say that for in the middle of the seven year period. After three and a half years, Antichrist, the one who sits in rulership, who has given a covenant to Israel according to Daniel chapter 9, promising them safety, a restoration of their type of worship, their temple and so forth, and uh, uh, he will break that covenant and will set himself up as God, demanding that he indeed is their Messiah, he is their God, and those who refuse, of course, will be eliminated and destroyed. But nonetheless, there is that very fact of that simple three division. I want you to keep that in mind. The beginning of the tribulation is kind of a mild sort of thing. It begins in chapter 6 with the rider on the white horse who is a deceiver. He comes mimicking Christ. He comes with a bow, no arrow. He offers peace. He is not offering war. And the world will simply open their arms to this man. And listen, today world leaders would welcome any individual who could promise them peace on this earth. They would welcome that, and especially in this present hour. But nonetheless, he will offer peace. But he will break his covenant with Israel at the middle of that seven-year period. And that's what Jesus talks about, the abomination of desolation. When this one comes and sits himself up as God and demands that he be worshipped, and then, if you'll pardon the expression, all hell begins to break loose on this earth. Of all the trauma and tragedy and dreadful tribulation, it begins in the middle part of this seven-year period. And so, the events in this time of tribulation, and I mentioned this before, I mentioned one more time again. They are they, these This judgment that is going to fall upon planet Earth, is, uh, is, in, is initiated, uh, as John gives us, with seven seals that are broken, seven trumpets that are sounded, and seven vials or bowls of the wrath of God that are poured out. And you remember I said this, that with each succeeding incident, things become increasingly worse. They, they increase until it is a time of tribulation such as the scripture said the world has never known and except those days, Jesus said in Matthew 24, would not, except those days should be shortened, no flesh would be saved. But he shortens it, remember Matthew 24, for the elect's sake. 
Remember that. For the elect's sake. All right. Now, this parenthesis of chapter 7, and I call it a parenthesis for this reason. Through chapter 6, we saw six of the seven seals broken. Now, you would normally expect in the next chapter to find the seventh seal. But it is not until chapter 8 that the seventh seal is broken, which gives way in an overlapping sense to the sounding of the first trumpet judgment. So here, this is a parenthesis between the sixth seal that is broken and the seventh. Now, this parenthesis gives us additional information that had the Lord not given it to us, we would indeed been in the dark about three very important truths. And I want to give those three truths to you now. Jot them down, if you will. First of all, in verse 1 through 3 of chapter 7, you have the suspending of judgment. The suspending of judgment. It ceases for a while. You have in verse 4 through verse number 8, the sealing of Jews. The sealing of Jews. And then in verse 9 through 17, you have the salvation of Gentiles. Uh, three, three simple divisions in the chapter. So I want you to look at them, and if you didn't get them, just hang on, and uh, we'll come to them as we move along. Now then, let's look at these things as they come in order. First of all, notice what I've called the suspending of judgment. Now, chapter 6 concluded with verse 17, which said, if you'll notice, for the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Now, notice, judgment has already been. But now with the breaking of this sixth seal, it is designated the great day of his wrath has come. So we refer to the tribulation as an overall period, but the last three and a half years we refer to as the great tribulation. Now, the question is asked, who will be able to stand? That is, who shall be able to endure? And the apparent answer is, no one. No one ever has been able to stand against and endure the judgment of God. So dreadful. And so horrible is the wrath of God that is to be poured out now that John says men begin to cry for the rocks and the mountains to protect them, to fall upon them and to hide them from the face of the Lamb who is seated on the throne. Now, I think you'll get this. Our Lord will not come to this earth until the end of the seven-year period. I'm not talking about the rapture. That's before this. But the second coming, when he comes, according to Zechariah, and places his foot on the Mount of Olives from which he ascended. And by the way, the Bible talks about a great earthquake occurring at that time. And the mountain itself shall be divided. I read, interestingly enough, that Holiday Inn had intended to build an inn on the Mount of Olives. But after their, after their uh, checking and testing, geologists revealed to them that there was an earth fault that ran right under the Mount of Olives. Now, uh, I, I'm telling you that to tell you this, not because the Lord needs an earth fault to create an earthquake. In other words, he can, put, he can start one anywhere he wants to. In other words, if he can create the world, he can do it. But, I think you find the, the very likelihood of the Lord. And listen, God doesn't have to wait till the end of the seven-year period to crank up what he needs to do to produce an earthquake. I think the Lord may have just left it there for us to realize that he meant exactly what he said and what he said is going to happen can and will definitely happen. But nonetheless, the Lord will come at the end of the seven-year period and place his feet upon the earth. But now notice, this cry that these men are crying for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them apparently is something that is going to occur toward the very end of the tribulation. I'm saying that for this reason. These sealed judgments, I said, do not simply run at one particular period, but you'll find they run all the way through. 
And so you have in the sixth seal, the lamb on the throne and men of this earth are crying, hide us from his face, the one who is seated on the throne. And the prophet said when Jesus, well, John said it in chapter one of Revelation, that when he comes, every eye shall see him. You remember that? I think it's verse 17 of chapter one of Revelation. And behold, he cometh in clouds and every eye shall see him. So this is that moment when he comes. So here is, uh, we find ourselves at this very concluding moment of uh, the uh, tribulation. Now chapter seven is included in that, uh, that period of judgment. Notice that. But what God does is this. He pauses in his dealing of judgment upon this earth to answer the prayer of an ancient prophet. And that old prophet's name was Habakkuk. Habakkuk in chapter 3 and verse 2. Habakkuk uttered this prayer and he prayed these words. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years In the midst of the years, make known in wrath, uh, make known in wrath, remember mercy. Now that's exactly what's happening in chapter 7. Judgment is already the wheels of judgment are turning. But now God pauses. There is a cessation of judgment at this point as God, even in the midst of his handing out judgment, is showing forth his mercy. So the purpose of this chapter is to show that even in God's wrath, he remembers mercy. He suspends his judgment for a brief temporary time. Now, undoubtedly, there's a very brief moment. But God is saying to men and women, I had rather show you mercy than to bring down judgment and wrath. So I think you'll find this interesting too. That in the other mentionings of judgment, for example, under the trumpet and the vile judgments, between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, there is another parenthesis. Between the sixth and the seventh vile judgment, There is another parenthesis. In wrath, God remembers mercy. Aren't you glad of that? So what God does here in verse 1-3 is that he stops the storm in order to show mercy to those who will accept it. And in doing so, prepares them for the worst, which is yet to come. Now, let me add to that this. And I think this is kind of a practical application. When the Lord saved me and redeemed me as a child of his, he did not make the world system in which I was living and still am any better. He didn't make it any better. But he did, when he saved me, he equipped me to live in a world that is becoming increasingly worse. Now, if you call me a pessimist, that's your privilege. But I'm going to tell you, folks, this world, pardon my grammar, ain't going to get any better. The things are going to continuously grow worse and more confusing, more vicious as days come and go. So the Bible predicts that. Even the love of many shall wax cold. Evil men and seducers shall grow and increase, Paul tells us. So the world system in which you and I are living, God never planned to change this old world system. The world system is designed and destined for judgment. But in judgment, God remembers mercy. Now I want you to remember something. In John 17, in the Lord's great high priestly prayer, at verse number nine, I want you to hear what Jesus said I'm praying for. He said, I pray for them, those the Lord's given him, those who would believe on him, those who would already believe. I pray for them. Now listen to this. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are mine. In other words, Jesus didn't in the Garden of Gethsemane say, Lord, correct this world system. And I'm going to tell you something else. You're wasting your breath when you do. The Lord said, I'm praying for those who are mine. 
Those who are my children, my chosen. This world system has already gotten the disease of spiritual and moral cancer eating away in it. And I'm going to tell you what, as a whole, there is no cure. It's going to grow worse and worse until the final moments of judgment. Now, the Lord does remember mercy in his wrath. He did so the Passover when Israel came out of Egypt. Judgment was upon the scene, but God remembered in his, remembered mercy. And he gave a place of security and safety for those who were under the blood. Again, God remembered mercy in the days of judgment in Noah's day. God remembered mercy, provided an ark. And Noah was out there for year upon year proclaiming to men and women that judgment was coming. But oh, how unsuccessful he apparently was as far as getting people to respond. And listen, as it was the days of Noah, so it is now. Men go on just like they always have. There's seemingly no real, real definite conviction that one day judgment is going to come. It's hard for us even here in America. We have never been trampled with foreign invaders in this country. And it's literally hard for me to imagine what it's like in countries that are being devastated by war and such anarchy in our present day. It's difficult for me to understand that. And yet I'm going to tell you it's hard for us in this country to believe that one day all of this thing that God's servant describes as judgment is going to come upon this very earth. But God in his judgment remembers mercy. He remembered mercy at Calvary when the precious son of God was brutally treated by men of this earth. The Lord could have called, he could have closed the book on us then, but he remembered mercy. And he extended his hand of mercy and grace and love to men who if they would receive him could indeed be born again. Now, note three things in verses one through three. Notice in verse one, the ceasing of wind. The ceasing of wind. Now, wind in the Bible, especially uh, in the Old Testament, is, is used as, as symbolic of an instrument of judgment. In the, especially in the temporal affairs of men. Now that's a prominent idea in the Old Testament. Let me just ask you to write these verses down in connection with that. I'm not going to take time to read them, but they all use this word wind in the sense of judgment. For example, Job chapter 1 verse 19, Job 38 and verse 24. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 24, and the verse says, the whirlwind shall carry them away. Isaiah 41 and verse number 16. And he says, the wind shall carry them away. You see, the association of wind in this Old Testament idea in connection with judgment. Jeremiah 4, verse 11 and 12. And chapter 18 of Jeremiah, verse 17. Ezekiel 5, verse 2. Chapter 12, verse 14. Jonah, chapter 1 and verse 4 and verse 10 and 12. And you'll find these Old Testament references if you didn't get all those, if you want them, see me after the service and uh, I'll give them to you. But anyway, what I want you to understand is this. I, I don't want you to think I'm just pulling something out of the hat and saying, hey, wind here speaks of judgment. But I think you'll definitely see that as you compare scripture with scripture, undoubtedly it is just that. It is used in the sense of the winds of judgment. God now, watch this, he ceases that wind and he says, the four angels hold the winds of the earth that the wind should not blow on the earth nor on the sea nor on any tree. Hurt not, verse two says, her, or verse three, hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God in their forage. Now, in verse two, notice not in verse one, the seas and wind, but verse two, notice the seal of God. The seal of God. He talks about they're going to be sealed with God's seal. Now, I think that is in very definite contrast with the mark of the beast. Uh, in uh, Revelation chapter, what is chapter 13, at verse 16, 17, and 18, you have that mark that men who have bowed and submitted to the world ruler, they will receive, else you can't buy or sell. And this seal that God placed in the forehead of his chosen they now are in marked contrast to those who have received the mark of the beast and judgment awaits them, whereas those who have the seal of God, heaven itself awaits them. Now, notice something else. Verse three, the sealed servants. 
For here the verse talks about those servants of God who would be sealed. Now, that brings us to our second main division of this chapter. And that is beginning at verse 4 down through verse 8. Sealing of Jews. The sealing of Jews. From verse 4 down to verse 8. And again, you may read that if you wish, but you'll find that it is a mention of 12 tribes in Israel who have 12,000 in each tribe and the sealed number of Jews. Notice we're in the tribulation. Notice the sealed number comes to 144,000 whom the Lord will seal with his seal. Now, these can definitely not be the church. And I said this morning, don't confuse the church and Israel and the Gentiles. There are three distinct groups that God deals with in the scripture. The church of God, the Jew, and the Gentile. Now, it cannot be the church. Why? Because the church has already been taken out and they're in heaven with the Lord. Moreover, let me say this. The church is neither Jewish nor Gentile. The scripture very clearly reveals that. It is the church that you and I are part is a new entity altogether. It is made up of, yes, believing Jews and believing Gentiles. But they are neither in the church of God, according to Galatians 3, verse 27 and 28, that in the church of our Lord, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, but one body. So the church, you see, that is, those who are saved and make up this group, uh, whom we call the church, and I'm not talking about just return Baptist church, I'm talking about ever saved man and woman on this earth. I'm saying then simply, it is, they, uh, this body is a new entity. And so we're not known as Jew and Gentile for the middle wall of partition, Paul said, has been broken down. All right, y'all follow me thus far? Huh? Are you still with me? Do like, do like that, do like that. Uh, three have nodded one way five minutes ago and that's all. All right, I'll come up with you for her. All right, and uh, let, let me say something else. Israel then, in these verses, Israel is plainly, clearly before us. I don't think there can be any mistake about that at all. Now the religious cults today who claim to be part of, the, they're, they're part of the 144,000. But as I said to you earlier in another message, when you meet somebody like that, ask them what tribe they're from. In other words, you will know their Jewish ancestry. These are definitely Israelites who are sealed. So, not, and, and by the way, I believe that these are they who have not had the gospel explained to them before. And yet when our Lord takes out the church, and there are those, the, the, the message is clear as to what's happened. Because you see, there are those even mission boards today who are, who are proclaiming the gospel. And there are many Jewish Christians who in Jerusalem around the world are testifying to their friends. I think of the late Dr. Jacob, Jacob Gardenhouse, a faithful servant of God, telling his family, telling his loved ones, telling his people. His, uh, and, and literally, old Dr. Gardenhouse, wasn't it his father whose rabbi led to Christ when his father's 90-something years of age? Led his father to Christ. Well, you know these fellows made, well, when this thing takes place, you talk about a bunch of folk getting set on fire. You want to realize as the nation turns, these elect begins to turn to Christ. They have realized now what has taken place. And I believe that these will be those who have not had the gospel explained to them before, but they'll turn to Christ after the rapture of the church. Now here's an interesting thing in all of the listing of the 12 tribes. You do not find the mention of a tribe of Dan in this list. Dan was a definite tribe in the nation of Israel. Now why is it that Dan is not mentioned here but there is a substitute for it? I believe that you'll find and I found it to my satisfaction that Dan is not mentioned here because of idolatry. And the tribe of Dan was given over to idolatry. And the Lord warned Israel in Deuteronomy, jot this verse down, in Deuteronomy chapter 29 and at verse 21, he warned Israel if they should, any of the tribes should go into idolatry that they would not be a part of the inheritance of the tribes of Israel. 
Again, the scripture is true to form. It doesn't miss a lick. And so right here before us, Dan is not mentioned. And yet uh, there are those who do believe and perhaps have reason to that perhaps the Antichrist shall come from the tribe of Dan. Now I could not prove that, but they base that on Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 15 and 16 where Jeremiah is talking about the conflict and he says the horses of Dan are heard neighing and roaring and trampling and uh, some other things that verse. But nonetheless, I'm not trying to find out where the Antichrist is coming from. Uh, I'm not going to be here anyhow and he's not going to show up till after the church is gone anyhow. Won't nobody going to know him so I'm going to waste my time trying to figure it out. Uh, so somebody's already said Hussein is the Antichrist. I heard that the other day. Can you imagine that? Uh, when a person starts identifying the Antichrist, I guarantee you they're putting their ignorance on display. Not only that, but uh, notice, if you will, uh, the sealed, that these are sealed, verse 2, they are sealed with the seal of the living God. They are sealed with that seal of the living God. Now, a seal has a threefold message. It speaks of identity, that is, divine possession. Divine possession, identity. These have God's living seal upon them. Not only that, but a seal speaks of insurance, which relates to divine protection. The Lord will protect them. Not only does he claim them as his own, he identifies them, he seals them, but he also provides protection for them. And uh, uh, the Lord does the same for you and me as his child today. He seals us. But we are sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, Ephesians 1.13. He has sealed us with that Holy Spirit of promise. God's Holy Spirit within you is God's seal that you belong to him. God's going to take care of you. And not only that, but a seal speaks here of indestructibility. That is, of divine preservation. The Lord is going to preserve his elect in the time of tribulation. In Jude chapter, Jude, I start to say chapter, but Jude 1, the first verse, Jude talks about those who are preserved in Christ. I heard a fellow say one time, and that don't mean they're pickled either, but it means they're protected. They're indestructible. God's very care is about them. If he could send the host of heaven to protect a man like Elisha and his servant down in the little village of Dalton in the book of Kings, I guarantee he can take care of his possession even in the midst of the severest kind of judgment. So they're sealed with the seal of the living God. Note verse three. Verse three calls these the servants of our God. Do you see that? They are the servants of our God. Now, what is a servant? A servant of God serves him by carrying out a divine assignment. So these undoubtedly are sealed as servants of God and they have a divine assignment. Now, I want to be clear and I want you to hear what I'm going to say. Though the scripture does not explicitly say that these 144,000 are going to be preachers and evangelists and missionaries. The scripture does not explicitly say that, but it is the logical conclusion of what you find is going to transpire as a result of God sealing these 144,000. Now, I believe personally that according to Matthew 24 and verse 14, that these 144,000 Jews will be those who are going to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. As I said the other Sunday, we do not preach today the gospel of the kingdom. What we are preaching today is the gospel of the grace of God. The good news that Jesus has died, that redemption has been made possible, that men and women can be saved by grace through faith. But you see, these undoubtedly proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. That is, the Lord, the King is coming. And you better get ready. You better accept these moments of mercy that God extends. And the scripture says, as he prophesied about the days before uh, in uh, the sixth seal when men had cried for the rocks and mountains. He said that would take place, but he said, and it'll come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
But those are so hardened in their heart in the time of tribulation, they'd rather call on rocks and mountains to fall on them than to call upon God to save them. So the heart is made hard, you see. But here these are they who are going to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Now I want to say this. You've heard some say that Jesus cannot come for his church until the gospel of the kingdom is preached in all the world. That is not what the Bible says. Jesus could have come for his church before you and I ever got on the scene. In fact, Paul looked for him in his time. Paul believed in the imminent return of Jesus for his own. And the word imminent does not mean immediate. It means simply could come at any time. So there is nothing in the church period that would say has to be fulfilled before the rapture of the church. You following me? Do like that again. You get that? Huh? I want you to understand that now. So what, what he is saying is simply this. The coming of Christ could be at any moment. But indeed, watch. The fact is the gospel even of the grace of God doesn't have to be preached in all the world before that happens. But he's saying now in relation to the tribulation period, which Matthew 24 deals chiefly with, and also Mark 13 deals chiefly with, yet he is saying in that period, this gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached all over the world. And later on you're going to find where two witnesses, two witnesses are viewed by people all over the world. And listen, you know how it's going to happen? A man thought you was an idiot. 50, 75 years ago, before the age of television. But isn't it amazing that something can happen right now in the Middle East, and you'll know about it in four or five minutes. I mean, just that quick. We can see soldier boys that left this country, going over there, and they're getting off, see them coming off the ship, driving tanks, flying airplanes, and everything to see what's going on. And all the television. So then the gospel of the kingdom indeed is going to be preached to all the world before the end. And I believe that means before the end of this, the age of the seven years before Christ comes, indeed, he, uh, it will be proclaimed. Well, let me move on quickly or I'm not going to be able to finish this tonight. Let me give you finally verse 9 through 17 where you find the salvation of Gentiles. Now, what we have in this passage, Acts this chapter, follows God's plan. As mentioned in Romans 1.16, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile or to the Greek. So first God's dealing with the Jew, and now through the Jews, as he has done even in our day, through the Jews comes the message. You see, that's where we got our message about Jesus. Now, here is in verse 9 the mention of an innumerable company. I mean, so many that John can even number them. An innumerable company. Now, let me pause here to say this. I personally do not believe that this number will include any who have rejected Christ in this present dispensation of grace. In other words, I believe a man who sat in this auditorium and heard the gospel of the grace of God and knows that he needs Jesus Christ and rejects the Son of God, deliberately leaves him out of his life, refuses him, I do not believe he'll be included in this great company that John sees here. I believe that based on 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 10, 11, and 12. Where those who have, had, uh, who have refused to receive the knowledge of the truth, they will, be, they, will be, uh, may, they will be presented a lie and they will believe that lie, the lie of the Antichrist, and, uh, and all of them may be damned. In other words, if men, listen, if men who have heard the gospel of the grace of God today will reject Jesus Christ, don't you ever think they won't do it in the same, in the same way when in the tribulation period? All right, so what we're saying is simple this. Here's a great host of people. Now, first of all, notice verse 9, their position. They stood, notice verse 9, they stood before the throne. Now, we've already seen the church pictured in heaven represented by the 24 elders. You remember that in chapter 4? Now, watch this. These stand. The elders are seated on thrones. They're reigning with Christ. But these are a different sort. They are, they are believers, Gentile believers. But watch now, they are standing as far as their position before the throne. Now notice verse 9 and also verse 13 and verse 14. And you'll see their purity, the purity of this great coast. And the scripture describes that they are clothed in white. 
that is symbolic of righteousness, of holiness, of acceptance before God. They are standing pure before him and the verses reveal that they have washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. In other words, hear this, mighty important. Men are saved in every dispensation of God's dealing with man and that salvation is attributed to the blood of the Lamb. Men were saved the same in Abram's day as they're saved now by grace through faith in the sacrifice that God provided, the blood of the Lamb. Without shedding of blood, there's no remission. So even in this period, they indeed are washed clean and pure in the blood of the Lamb. Verse 9, notice something else. Notice their protection, their protection. They have palms in their hands, palms in their hands which is an expression and a, and a picture of, joy, of the joy of complete deliverance. They have been completely delivered from this world that has rejected them. And then notice verse 10, and I'll hurry here. Their praise, look at their praise at verse number 10. Verse number 10, and the verse says, And they cried with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Salvation. Now, you remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry? Remember what the people were crying? Hosanna, Hosanna. The word simply means save now, save now, salvation. And it is a word as well of exultant praise. So here these are praising the Lord by reason of his triumphant way. And then look at verse 15, their privilege. What a privilege verse 15 reveals. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that, sit, that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. Notice they serve him day and night in his temple. Dr. Harry Ironside, who I respect greatly, dead now, but Dr. Ironside's left behind a great legacy of great scriptural truth. Dr. Ironside believed that this service that is to be rendered would be rendered in the millennial temple because he said there's the mention of day and night and in heaven there is no day and night. It is one eternal day. So what service these will render has something to do perhaps with the fact of serving God in that millennial temple and there will be a temple in the millennium. There will be a tribulation temple and already in the Jewish mind, listen, Constantly, if you, if you could read a Jerusalem Post, if you can hear word from the, many of the Orthodox Jews, their dream, their dream, their ambition, their prayer is for the erection of that temple where they can go back and worship God as in days of old. And then verse 16 and 17, I must close. What words these are, what uh, provision you find here, and that is their provision. They shall hunger no more. Let me challenge you to do something this week. Check out the no mores in your Bible. No more. What a thrill. I don't make a, brother, I don't make anybody preach. The no mores in the Bible. And so he said, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the lamb, for the lamb, which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto, ever, uh, for, unto living fountains of water and watch in closing. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. The days of sorrow will be gone for these. Know what sorrow they had. Rejected, persecuted, hunted down. No food that they could buy in or sell for they didn't take the mark of the beast. Oh, what harassment they've gone through. But now all that's behind them. I'll tell you tonight, child of God, all your troubles are going to be behind you one of these days too. Thank God, thank God for that. One day it's going to be a different story. And the chapter winds up and, the, and says, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Dr. Lynn Broughton, who was pastor of the great Baptist Tabernacle Atlanta years ago, and today the Tabernacle Atlanta is not a large church. It used to be. Thousands of people gathered in there under Dr. Broughton's ministry. And uh, he said one day he received a call from a mother who wanted him to come out and visit her little son. And she said, Dr. Broughton, you led my son to Christ. And he'd like to see you. He's very sick. In fact, there's little chance for him to live. And Dr. Broughton said he made his way out to that home and came in the living room and then ushered back in the bedroom where the little fellow's on the bed. 
And Dr. the old preacher began to talk to the little lad and ask him about when he was saved. And, and they rejoiced. He rejoiced with that little fella and about him trusting Christ. And Dr. Broughton then said to him, Son, do you, do you dread uh, leaving this world? And the little boy began to weep and he said, No, not so much leaving the world, but I, I don't want to leave mommy and daddy and don't want to leave my friends. But he said, You know, Pastor, he said, uh, I know I'm going to die. But he said, one day it's going to be different. And Dr. Broughton said, the little fellow's tears just flowing down his face. And he said, he reached in his pocket and pulled out a handkerchief out of his coat. And the old pastor just kind of dried away the tears from the little fellow's eyes. The little boy looked up at him and said, Dr. Broughton, the next time my tears are wiped away, Jesus will do it. I want to tell you something. The next time your tears are wiped away, Jesus is going to wipe them away. And when he wipes them away, they're going to be gone for good. Hallelujah. Aren't you glad? That'd make a Pentecostal out of a Baptist, wouldn't it? To rejoice over what our Lord provided for us. The sealing, the sealing of the servants, the suspension of judgment, the salvation of Gentiles. Many will be brought to Christ. I, was, I, I said I'll tell you that now. Through, let me just mention this comes to mind. When I was in Israel, our guide, one of our guides is a man who was an Israeli. His name was Eli Israel. He's proud of that name. And uh, Eli, we had a lot of wonderful conversations together. And I thought how he had described to us all these places in Israel and all in Jerusalem. Man, he could just rattle it off, had such a brilliant mind and just call everything to my history of all sorts, duck place. He knew history. You'd enjoy him. And I thought after we left, I thought, you know, maybe old Ali, one of these days, be one of those preachers. And if he is, I guarantee you, somebody's going to hear the message. Somebody's going to hear it. One of these days, folks, going to be all over. Won't be long. Time's running out for us. But as sure as you live, the things that this old book's prophesied are moving fast to begin taking place on this earth. I ask you this, are you saved? Do you know Christ Jesus as your personal Savior? The rocks of the mountains and the hills is not the rocks you need. You need to flee to the rock, the cleft of the rock, to hide in Christ, for only in him will the storm pass over you. Let's bow our heads for prayer.